Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast from Voice Community. In this episode, we're going to look at your working life and the issues that affect you. Policy in the here and now. We're going to look at the behaviour hubs that the government have just launched and we're going to bust some of those Ofsted myths. Thanks to those of you who downloaded and listened to last month's episode. We're starting this month with the here and now uh, and with face coverings for COVID. Martin, very recently, the government did a bit of a review. We were a bit worried that this review was going to be taking place uh, a little bit too soon after schools went back. And we wanted face coverings to remain a necessity in schools. What was the outcome of the review? Yeah, so the... the Secretary of State made an announcement, um, uh, it was published in the Times just recently, that um, face coverings are going to be uh, a continuing part of the safety measures until at least May the 17th. We don't know yet what is going to happen after May the 17th, but that is the date when potentially uh, the next stage of unlocking will happen. And so that could have an impact on the use of face coverings within school, both in classrooms and also in the communal areas. Um, We've always been supportive of face coverings. Since the very beginning, we've highlighted the fact that if members wanted to wear face coverings, they should be allowed to do so, as long as um, it didn't have a detrimental effect on the pupils that they were working with, because we know a number of our members work with deaf and hearing impaired students. Um, We've also been very supportive of the idea of pupils wearing face coverings, because our survey just before Christmas highlighted the fact that members wanted everybody to be wearing face coverings and they wanted everybody to be doing um, lateral flow tests as part of the um, system of of control measures for keeping everybody safe for as long as possible. Having said all of that, we're also absolutely clear that we don't want any of these control measures to go on longer than is absolutely necessary. So regular reviews are a really important thing. We're going to come back to lateral flow tests in a minute. In schools, um, and, and and maybe nurseries are a little bit different, but we'll maybe start with schools. Who has to wear a face covering? When do they have to wear it? And where do they have to wear it? So the rules are quite clear now. They were a little bit vague previously, but um, they're now very clear that anybody who is aged 11 and up must wear a face covering in school at all times, um, unless they are outside and unless they are doing uh, an activity like PE, where obviously wearing a face covering would be inappropriate. So um, communal areas, corridors, staff rooms, classrooms, parents should also be wearing a face covering if they were to uh, visit the site as well. And in fact, lots of schools have done a brilliant job of this, and they've had staff at the uh, entrances to the school with boxes of face masks, just in case people have forgotten to bring one. Who's enforcing this in schools? I've seen some reports that schools are enforcing this just like their uniform policy. So the same as you would if the student wasn't wearing their tie or their blazer or whatever it is your school's uh, uniform policy is without a mask, it's enforced in the same way. But my, I guess, I guess what I'm kind of asking is under most uniform policy rules, I suppose, in schools, if you weren't wearing your tie, you might go in time out for the morning. Well, you can't really go in time out, presumably, without the face mask. So is there any sort of guidance for schools on what to do if someone turns up without one or refuses to wear one? Wearing a face covering is not law in schools. It's just a recommendation from the Department for Education. 
So the only people who are able to police this are the schools themselves. Um, and the, they've done a brilliant job because what they have, the way they've approached this is by engagement with the pupils and the parents to show them that this is a really good thing and it's a good way of keeping everybody safe. Some schools, like you said, have gone down the uniform policy route and this is part of the uniform, at least for a temporary period. Other schools have decided to take this down a behaviour policy route uh, where the school is making a reasonable request and therefore any pupil that fails to follow what is a reasonable request could suffer um, sanctions under the behaviour policy. You're right that that doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of schools use uh, an isolation or withdrawal from normal lessons as part of their behaviour policy, and that can cause an issue if pupils are not wearing face coverings, which is why schools have taken the practical option, which is usually to provide a face covering where one isn't already available. And I suppose that... Um, that that uh, takes away the possibility because I can hear the sighs in my head now as teachers think, yes, it's brilliant, let's have face coverings in school, makes me feel a lot safer. And then day one, several students walk in with inappropriate images or inappropriate slogans on them and I can hear the sighs now in my head. But I suppose having them there provided um, takes away some of that. Yeah, it's just part of the risk assessment and it's an important thing for children to understand that they are part of the solution here as well. Yeah. Uh, you touched on exemptions a moment ago and you've just said that it's not law in schools. So is that how, um, I don't know, here in Derby we've got the Royal School for the Deaf, for example. Is that how schools like that sort of get around that recommendation that it's not law? Maybe they've got some other clever way of, of dealing with it? There are some um, very, very innovative masks out there that are made of a transparent fabric that don't steam up. Um, but these tend to be quite expensive. But we do know that uh, our members that have been working with deaf students have tried to use those sorts of face coverings to enable the students to lip read, but also to enable them to see the facial expressions, which are a key part of British Sign Language. Um, other ways that you can do that are to increase the space and the ventilation. Um, just following the government's rules, really, hands, face, space and fresh air. And now that we're moving into nicer weather, people will be able to have windows and doors open without suffering um, from the cold and the, and the wet like they have done during the winter. Yeah, it's common sense, isn't it, I suppose? I think it's something that we've relied on a lot from the very start. You know, I'm not going to praise the government for everything they've done, but right from the start, they asked employers to be flexible, and that's something we've encouraged. Um, and it just, you know, but everyone's got their their opinion on what that means. So lateral flow tests we touched on just then. There was a report um, last week uh, released by the government that said that lateral flow tests are 99.9% accurate at testing uh, for positive cases of COVID. I read that report and and almost immediately there were some criticisms of it. What do you know about those criticisms? What can we... I think it's fair to say that we're not medics. Yeah. You know, we're not scientists. We don't know. All we can do is look at the reports that are published and interpret the figures. Overwhelmingly, the reports do state that these tests are highly effective when people have got the virus. So they're really good when people have got a high viral load, which means that they've got the virus, but they may not be demonstrating any sort of symptoms. What we don't know is whether or not these tests are as effective at detecting COVID at other times. I have no idea. And there are a load of reports out there that have different uh, statistics on them um, so it's impossible for us to say. What we can say 
when someone does have a positive test, they're encouraged to get a proper PCR test, um, which will confirm one way or the other. Um, therefore, it is better for everybody to be tested and for those very rare false positives to be um, double tested than for people to not know. Um, so at the moment, we're still recommending uh, that people continue to follow the uh, advice and, and have tests twice a week for those aged 11 and upwards and also for their families because uh, people in the community can now get these tests from their local pharmacy and from testing sites. Yeah, and even if they weren't that accurate, what we found with our survey results was taking them and wearing face masks, it was the same as well, but taking the lateral flow tests made our members feel um, more secure, more positive, safer. Absolutely, yeah. So moving on to behaviour hubs then, that's our next topic. First of all, what are they? The, the DfE announced a £10 million programme to support 500 schools with behaviour concerns. And, and the, the programme's meant to enable outstanding partner schools and MATS to work with schools that need to improve. Um, and I'm just going to read the, the aims to improve pupil behaviour. So they aim to improve pupil behaviour by diagnosing what can be improved developing new behaviour approaches, launching the new approaches and monitoring their implementation. And this week, the partner schools have been revealed. Where has all this come from? So in 2017, March 2017, uh, an independent review of behaviour was undertaken and the DfE published a report um, from all this written by a guy called Tom Bennett, and it was called Creating a Culture, How School Leaders Can Optimise Behaviour. The government responded through the Secretary of State at the time, which was Justine Greening, and began looking at uh, Tom Bennett's recommendations. And over the last four years, they've been looking at this, which have now developed into this Behaviour Hub programme. I suspect that COVID has kind of got in the way of implementing this a little bit, um, is that the only thing that COVID has had to do with this? Because I know Gavin Williamson was recently in the news talking about a fall in behaviour during lockdown. I think that upset a few people. It annoyed a few people. Has that got anything to do with this? So this has got nothing really to do with Gavin Williamson's recent announcements in the news about behaviour um, worsening during lockdown. And actually, we've had many reports from staff members uh, from from members saying that they felt that behaviour had improved during um the recent return to schools and that pupils were looking forward to being back with their friends and were actively participating in lessons. There was also some comments that face coverings have actually helped behaviour a little bit and cut down on some of the low-level disruption, hmm. which is interesting. So, no, this is uh, an entire... So this is a project which has been long in development and has nothing to do with any recent announcements by the Secretary of State. So this is open to... All primary, secondary, alternative provision, pupil referral unit and special schools that receive public funding. That's right. The schools have to be um, receiving public funding. So that does include academies and free schools as well as maintained schools. So what is it that these partner schools are going to be doing to offer help and support to these schools? Like you said at the beginning, there's an awful lot about this we don't know. What we do know is that... Uh, there are going to be a, a variety of different ways in which the partner schools will engage with the schools who need additional support. They're going to be able to hold open days 
and to allow um, senior leaders and behaviour managers in to observe good practice. There's also going to be networking and forum events to discuss strategies and I suspect some of those will be able to run online until we can meet face to face again. And there's going to obviously be a huge amount of resources available. There's also going to be some proper training available and support at three different levels. There's going to be core support, which is where schools have pretty much got it sorted. They just need a little bit of help, and so they're able to work independently. There's going to be extended support, and this is where a partner school will work one-to-one -one with a school needing additional help. And then there'll be multi-school support, which is for um, large trusts, um, who um, are in charge of more than one school looking at behaviour approaches across the whole entire organisation. So do we have any idea when all this is going to be implemented? At the moment, um, the plan is for it to be implemented from September. The partner schools have just been announced and, uh, yeah, there is funding available, so we'll, we'll just have to keep an eye and see where this goes. Um, the one thing that we are most concerned about is that this is going to implement a behaviour strategy um, which is perhaps different to the ethos of the school or perhaps one mm. which is overly strict. Um, again, there's just so much about this that we don't yet know. So sort of reserving judgment uh, for the meantime, aren't we? And, and we'll, uh, yeah, yeah. When, when we know more, I'm sure we'll discuss it on this podcast. So moving on to uh, a section we're going to call working life, I think, and we discussed what we wanted to put in here and we decided that given the time of year, some terms and conditions touching on resignation dates might be quite useful. So we'll start there. Obviously, people in different parts of education have different resignation dates, That's right, yeah. so we'll touch on that. But let's start perhaps with teachers. When's the last day that a teacher can resign if they want to start a new job on the 1st of September? So assuming that they're not in any sort of probation period, and unfortunately we do know that some uh, independent schools and some academies and free schools do use probation periods. So assuming that nobody's covered under a probation period, then the last day for handing in your resignation is May the 31st. So you can't just stick it in the post on May the 31st and assume that your school have received it. It's better to make sure that you hand it in to someone so that it is received by May the 31st. Um, the Burgundy Book, um, which governs these sorts of things, uh, says that you should give half a term's notice, so May the 31st, in order to leave on August the 31st. And it's also really important that if people are planning on um, leaving their current employment to start somewhere new in September, that they don't just say, oh, I want to leave at the end of term, but actually specify the dates. And that makes sure that everybody is clear, everybody has the same understanding. It, it, it's really important for, for people uh, listening, particularly teachers, if you want to be paid for the August holidays, your resignation date is the 31st of August and you'll start your new school's contract on the 1st of September. I mean, check your local area for, for the start dates, but you want to resign the day before you start your new job. That's right. It's really important that you say check your local conditions because we do know that schools in Leicestershire, for example, have different term dates. They go back in August, whereas most of the rest of the uh, uh, schools in England will start back on the September the 1st, or that is the beginning of the new, the new school term anyway. It's also important to note 
with schools that head teachers and some other school leaders will have a much, much longer notice period and may have to give as much as a whole terms notice. So unfortunately, for those of you listening to this podcast, you might already have missed the resignation date if you are a school leader. And again, it's really important. Check your contract because that is where the uh, answers usually can be found. Just to rewind ever so slightly there, you mentioned, I think for the second month in a row, the Burgundy book. Now, I think maybe we should do a bit of a bit of a section maybe next month or, or coming up on the Burgundy book. But just very, very briefly, for people listening who don't know, what is it? So the Burgundy book is a set of terms and conditions for the employment of teachers. It was published back in 2000 and hasn't been um, superseded yet. However, certain of the terms and conditions within it have been improved as statutory legislation has changed. So things like the maternity leave that people are able to access now is much better than the maternity leave which was provided for 20 years ago when the book was written. Yeah, 20 years. I think my default is always to hear anything that starts with 2000 and to think that's quite recent. But yeah, 20, 21 years ago now. Um, Okay, what about other areas of the workforce in schools, people other than teachers? Yeah, so those who work in schools but are not employed as teachers are probably on uh, terms and conditions where they have to give four weeks notice. And this is probably the same for those working in education roles outside of schools as well. So people working in uh, hospital education, people working in nurseries and early year settings. Again, like we've said, it's best to check the terms of your contract because that is where the answers will often be found. But usually, assuming that you have got um, more than uh, a couple of years work behind you, then you will only be required to give four weeks notice of your intention to leave your employer. If the employer is looking to make someone uh, redundant, then they might have to give you more notice, usually one week's notice for every year that you've been employed, up to a maximum of 12 weeks or three months. But if you are leaving the employer, then usually you only need to give four weeks notice. So something we often get asked related to this subject um, by members over the phone is about references. As a general subject, Mm. this comes up quite a lot. Are there any rules, laws that actually govern what a reference should be, what it can, what it can't be, and so on and so forth? There have been uh, a lot of discussions about changes in the last few years because references are still quite a grey area. There are very, very few different types of employment that actually require a reference. And that sometimes comes as a surprise to members. Their employer doesn't have to give them a reference. Unfortunately, we know that references can be an issue which can then prevent people from getting new employment because if you don't have a reference, it can be very difficult to secure new employment. When people do get a reference, the only real rules are that it must be fair and accurate. And that's it, really. There's not not a lot else. Pretty much. There there are things that references in education should reference. So they must talk about whether or not they think a person is safe to work with children, for example. They must pass on if um, an employee is subject to any capability or disciplinary action. But pretty much... Yeah, as long as it's fair and accurate, there are not many other rules about what should or shouldn't be mentioned. It has to be fair and accurate, and so it can't really contain opinions. Okay, so disciplinary is a good point. Again, it's a question we're sometimes asked. 
if you were subject to a disciplinary and the outcome was that it would stay on your record for the next 12 months and then you apply for a new job within those 12 months, that's something that your current employer has to, can. They're supposed to pass that on, yeah. Put Put it in your reference for your future employer. What about after those 12 months are up? Disciplinaries should, once they have expired, effectively cease to exist for the purposes of your employment. They shouldn't be looked back upon and they shouldn't be communicated to any future employers. They should be deleted, expunged. They should be expunged, excellent word, expunged from your record. Thank you. Do you have the right to see a reference that your employer is writing about you and perhaps more importantly how how do you get to see it so yeah you do have the right to see any reference but you don't have the right to ask your employer to see it you can only see a reference that has been received um, about you. So Isn't it too it, late by that? It's a little bit complicated, but what we find is that if you ask your employer, most of them will share their reference with you before they send it. But you don't have a legal right to see it there. You only have a legal right to see your reference once it has been received. And then do you have the right to challenge it? As we've said, references must be fair and accurate. They can include details about your performance and if you've been subject to any disciplinary uh, action like we've said, but they're not allowed to be opinions. And that's why most references now are very, very brief. They're often statements of employment. They say things like your job title, maybe a description of what you actually did, your salary, and the dates that you were employed. Because opinions can be challenged, should be challenged in some instances, and because um, employers don't want to get caught in the legal challenge that can arise from making a misleading statement in a reference. So this is the bit I think I would really like um, a special jingle for because we're going to start doing a couple of myth busters at the end of the podcast um, and we started off with I think one that probably would be most teachers favorite question if they could ask it in terms of myth busting and it's about Ofsted so here's the here's the myth okay I'm going to give you the myth and you bust it if that's okay yep, so yep. I think the myth is Ofsted want to see a detailed lesson plan when they walk in to observe you. So you're there, you know Ofsted's in school, you've planned all your lessons for your day, you were up till one o'clock in the morning the night before making sure all your lessons were planned and Ofsted walk into your classroom and the myth is, or is it true, that they want to see seating plans and detailed lesson plans. You've got to hand them to the Ofsted inspector as they walk through the door. Yeah, so I've called this Ofsted and the four-part lesson plan, which sounds a bit like a really bad parody of Harry Potter. And essentially, it revolves around, do Ofsted want to see lessons planned in a certain way? And what information do they need in order to make a judgment? When I was teaching a few years ago, I had a a long conversation with an Ofsted inspector. And one of the key things that I took away from that conversation was that if an Ofsted inspector has to ask for a lesson plan, then that's because they cannot see the plan in action. So that would be the first thing. No, Ofsted do not need to see a lesson plan. What they want is to see your lesson plan in action, in the learning that they can see in the classroom. We all know about four-part lesson plans where you recap previous learning, impart new information, prove that learning has taken place and then reinforce it as a summary. In general, that's actually not a bad thing. That's not a bad model to follow. But Ofsted don't need to see that and they certainly don't need it written up 
on eight pages of A4 and handed to them at the beginning of a lesson together with a seating plan. They don't need to know who the special needs children are. They don't need to see um, huge amounts of, of data about those pupils, about their targets, flight paths or anything like that. They, what they need to see is that you are teaching these children and that this lesson sits in a, um, a sequence of lessons and that the children are making progress as they go along. So my understanding is, a bit like you just said, but just to sort of to, to, to praise it, I suppose, Ofsted need to see evidence that you have planned the lesson. Now, that could be, as I was told when I was a, an NQT, that could be as simple as writing it on a small box-shaped thing. <laughs> I don't want to say fag packet. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, small uh, piece of paper in a few bullet points. Um, or it could be just the presentation that you're using. It, yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if you've got a presentation with slides on it that you use whilst you're teaching the lesson, that's evidence you've planned it. That is evidence you've planned it. And of course, the best evidence is also the learning that has happened previously because Ofsted inspectors will speak to the children in your class about what has previously happened. If I can just quote from the Ofsted handbook, it says that Ofsted will, when making judgments, take a range of evidence into account. It does say that they will discuss with staff and pupils uh, uh, the work that is going on in lessons and the work that is in books, folders and sketchbooks. But it does make very, very clear what Ofsted will not do. It says that Ofsted will not grade individual lessons. It says that Ofsted will not create unnecessary workload through their recommendations. It says that Ofsted will not advocate a particular method of planning, teaching or assessment. And it's up to schools to decide what planning, teaching and assessment practices that they use in that school. So it doesn't even need, they don't even need to see specific marking in books. It's up to the school what assessment looks it's like. It's up to school what assessment looks like. Ofsted doesn't require curriculum planning in any specific format. It doesn't require a written record of feedback that you've given to pupils. It doesn't need to see individual lesson plans, previous lesson plans, future lesson plans. It doesn't need to see predictions of attainment or progress scores. And all of this information is made very clear in the Ofsted handbook. So let's imagine you're at a school where your head teacher says Ofsted does want to see all that. And that's what they want from you week in week out how would we advise a member to go about approaching their senior leader in their school to advise that that's not actually the case so this is a bit of a difficult one the school is advised to create its own assessment system it can have its own planning system that it requires all staff to follow what Ofsted are saying is that they don't have any preferred method and so therefore if the school is saying that they're doing this for Ofsted the teacher can come back to the head teacher and say, actually, do you know what? The Ofsted handbook here, it says that that's not true. However, as a teacher, you can't then say, I'm not going to follow the school's lesson plan performer because that's failing to follow a reasonable request. It is a bit of a balancing act because schools will often say that something is being done for Ofsted and it might well be done to make things easier for the school so that they've got information ready for when Ofsted do turn up. But it's important that we make clear that Ofsted isn't actually asking for these things. So in summary, do Ofsted need to see a detailed lesson and seating plan? No.
Absolutely That's not. That's the summary. It makes very clear in section 74 of the Ofsted handbook that Ofsted does not specify how planning should be set out. It doesn't specify the length of time that it should take or the amount of detail that that planning should contain. So that is our first myth busted. Boom! I'm going to want that every week from now on. Of course uh, you are. <laughs> Just like my silly voice when I do the quotes. Well, you didn't do it for Ofsted earlier on, which is a little bit disappointing. I realised halfway through I should have asked you for your silly voice. Um, if anyone listening has got any ideas, any myths they'd like busting, uh, I've got a few ideas, but it'd be great to hear from our members. Um, or just in general, a subject you would like us to chat about. That's right. Get in touch with us um, with anything that you would like us to look at in these policy podcast um, uh, recordings. Uh, the email address to do that is educationpolicy at community-tu.org. Also look out in your own email boxes for our regular updates, uh, uh, particularly around the COVID situation at the moment. There is one different one for each nation. So Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England each have... Um, their own updates so look out for those follow us on social medias facebook twitter community has an instagram page as well for up to the minute information from them today as we record this is stephen lawrence day and community and voice section have been very active in that yeah i know lots of people have um, requested the assembly for today and they've been uh, able to download some resources to support teaching uh, about hate crime and uh, other issues that raised by the Stephen Lawrence Foundation. Yeah, so it's not too late. If, you, if you're listening to this and you weren't involved in the day or you didn't know it was going ahead, there's still resources available. Whilst Stephen Lawrence Day is today, the 22nd of April, it doesn't mean that that stuff's not useful in the future. And we do have a workshop in the last week of May around um, difficult conversations uh, in the classroom and in the workplace in general. So that's still available to book as well. And thanks for listening. Thank you.